So this was a difficult episode to publish. Not a difficult episode to make, but there is a good friend of mine who has been struggling with her asexuality for some time. And we've been working through it together. I've been helping her. She's been asking for my help. And she wants to change. She wants to experience a lot of the things that I've talked about in my podcast episodes, but she's basically afraid. There are a lot of really negative social forces around promoting and encouraging asexuality. And they don't like people going off the reservation, so to speak. I did not realize until I published the episode on identity and behavior, just how ideologically attached people are to the things that form the core components of their identity because I'm not wired that way. I am essentially evidence-based. And I forget sometimes how people can become very protective of their, or even the smallest elements of their core identity. What this means is that if you are asexual, try to understand that I'm not saying that you're wrong or there's anything wrong with you. What I am saying is that you have been lied to. You have been deceived. You have been pressured and bullied by a society that is self-evidently unwell. And responding in this way is limiting the joy in your life. And that is something that I find impossible to tolerate. I am not an angry person, but there are certain things that make me extremely angry. And the deliberate structural limitation of people's happiness and joy is something that enrages me. And I can't lie. I have to tell the truth. And that means that sometimes I have to say things that other people are not going to like very much. So when you're listening to this, I want you to understand that I'm not condescending to you. And that if I come across as angry, it's because I'm having a conversation with a friend who is asexual and I'm explaining my perspective on things. I thought about recording this conversation because it was, well, recording my side of this conversation because it might be useful to people to understand my perspectives and the chains of reasoning behind the way that I feel about this topic. And also that there are extremely simple solutions to this. Asexuality is effectively being sexually depressed. It operates off the same biochemical and neurological mechanisms as depression. It responds extremely effectively to the same 
solutions to depression or to several of the same solutions to depression. It is essentially and effectively a self-protection mechanism from a highly motivated unconscious mind that loves you unconditionally and wants to stop you from being hurt in a way that prevents you or minimizes the pain that you're in in the short term, but does so at massive expense, cutting you off from an entire lifetime of joy and happiness and connection and intimacy and meaning for the sake of minimizing your short-term pain. The solution to conflict is never to run away from the conflict. It is to embrace the conflict. It is to move forward through the conflict. The solution to asexuality is not to run away or tolerate it. It's to understand why your mind is feeling this way. And I hope this episode will provide you with some understanding and some clarity around that. But it's also to never tolerate situations that are harmful to you. And asexuality is not an end, it is not an end goal, it is not an end state, it is not forever. Asexuality is a a stress response by your unconscious mind to protect you from emotional, physical, or sexual pain. And understanding why that response has come about and then moving to resolve that through therapy and intervention. If you would like some recommendations for therapists or hypnotherapists, just get in touch with me and I can provide you with a list of ones that are excellent. But uh, the solution is never to run away from conflict. The solution is never to... There's this quote in strength training. I guess I'm getting a bit emotional about this because I feel two things very strongly at the same time. I feel sadness for people that are suffering like this. It is suffering. It is not a natural default. It is not an acceptable alternative. It is an undesirable state. It is suffering. These people are suffering. And if they are not suffering, if they don't think they're suffering, it's only because they're numb to what they feel as a self-protection mechanism, which is a very good short-term crisis management tool. Thank you to their unconscious mind. But it's never going to solve that problem in the long term. You know, Einstein says that um, insanity can be, or there are many definitions of insanity, but the quote is, insanity is doing the same thing twice and expecting a different result. Although I believe that was him making a remark on chaos theory and uh, theories of quantum gravity. So maybe it's not particularly relevant to this conversation. The point is, you can't, he also said, that you can't solve a problem with the same thinking that created the problem. So to understand that asexuality is a self-defense mechanism, it is a very effective self-defense mechanism, but it cannot ever solve the problem. Because the problem is not that you're asexual. The problem is that the environment that you are in is creating something called a broken loop. I'll talk about this more in another episode, but the simple version of this is basically 
If you zoom out to a 10,000 foot view and you examine and apply operant conditioning principles to the structure of modern society, a lot of things become extremely clear. The short and simple version of this is that your unconscious mind is protecting you from trauma, pain, or the perceived trauma or pain, the idea of trauma or pain, or the possibility of future trauma or pain by numbing or not allowing your body's normal physiological responses to pleasure and happiness and joy and connection and touch. And I feel sadness at the people that have been hurt such that they feel they need to deploy unconsciously these protection mechanisms. But I am also just angry. I'm so absurdly angry at this idea that's promulgated through our society that this is acceptable, this is normal, this is natural. It's not. It's, it is a trauma response. There's this quote in strength training that it's okay to be weak. It's not okay to stay weak. And I think that's very empowering. It is okay to have been hurt. It is not okay to stay that way forever. You do not have the right to deny the world your unique potential. You do not have the right to deny the world, your family, your friends, particularly your friends, and the human race in general, everything that you are capable of once you are filled with joy and love and purpose. And asexuality is depression. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not being metaphorical or allegorical or pseudo-literal. I'm being literal. Asexuality is sexual depression. It operates off the exact same mechanisms. It operates for roughly the same purposes to protect you or as a response to the environment or certain biochemical changes in your neurology and biochemistry. And the solution, it's okay to be depressed. It is. I mean, it is, but it's not okay to not do anything about it such that you remain depressed. There are answers, there are solutions This is the work that I have dedicated my life to. To the complete and abject extermination of depression. And this is a facet of that work. Asexuality kills people. There's this fantastic quote, I'm not sure where it's from, but it's Most men lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. And I have always really identified with the second part of that quote. And that's the opposite of what I want for you. I don't want you to go to the grave with your song still in you. I want you to live and I want you to connect with someone that matters to you 
in every possible way that your body is capable of doing, on every possible level. And I want you to experience the kinds of things that I have seen people experience during my work with them, during my demonstrations or classes or people that I've helped. I know this is real. I know that it seems impossible to imagine a world in which someone can smile at you and you can just cum your fucking brains out. But it's real. And it's possible that everyone can access that. And if you haven't gotten there yet, it's okay. I'm not judging you. I don't think less of you. I'm not angry at you. You've just been victimized by society, by belief systems, by family members or religious upbringing or shitty first boyfriend or terrible first girlfriend. But you don't deserve that. You don't deserve a life of sexual nothingness. Your mind is beautiful and your body is beautiful and it's capable of astonishing things, things that you things that are real, that are hard to imagine could be real until you have experienced them. I have at this point taught hundreds of women to feel this way and several men. It's not hard to do if you know what you're doing. Sorry, I'll rephrase that. It's not hard to teach people how to do this if you know what you're doing. Sometimes it can be hard to experience it because there's trauma, there are conflicting belief systems. And maybe sometimes in an environment there are, well, reasonably valid reasons for not wanting to experience strong emotions or passion in the environment that you're in. Maybe it's in conflict with another part of your life. I've worked with several women that work in the military and uh, or other high-pressure, super ultra high-performance sorts of positions where you basically have to become a low-grade sociopath in order to survive. And uh, yeah, the environment is, what's the word I'm looking for here? I guess not conducive to that kind of expression, but that doesn't mean that you don't ever feel those things. It just means that you create another environment in your life where you're able to experience those things, where it's safe for you to. I feel my heart goes out to the people that are dealing with asexuality. But asexuality is not a permanent disability. It is a temporary state of existence that happens mostly as a matter of self-protection and it can be resolved with therapy and treatment. If you're suffering from it and you want help, I want you to understand that it's not as hard to fix this as you think that it is, particularly with hypnosis. Everybody can feel and experience the things that I describe in my podcast episodes. Now, because I'm sure someone's going to whinge about this, you know, you, there are physiological orgasms that are only possible to experience if you are a biological woman with two X chromosomes and, you know, like certain body parts, like it's hard to have a clitoral orgasm without a clitoris, although that's actually a really good example because uh, the clitoral orgasm and the male penile orgasm are effectively identical. 
but I'm thinking more like um, cervical orgasms or deep spot orgasms because that musculature just does not exist in an accessible way in men. You know, you, you can't shove your fingers inside of a dude's vagina and then just, you know, touch the right spots. It's not, you know, it doesn't work like that. You can create a fairly realistic simulacrum of them mentally though. But the point that I'm trying to make here is you deserve to have an amazing sex life. You deserve to be able to plunge deeply into feeling with somebody. You deserve to be able to spend a couple of days in an Airbnb getting your brains fucked out by someone that you love and that you cherish and that you're going to spend the rest of your life building a life with. And you deserve to be able to experience everything that your body is capable of experiencing with another person in a healthy and wholesome and holistic way. And then if you decide that massively intense full body orgasms are not for you and you prefer denial or edging, that's a choice that you can make. But if you're choosing numbness and despair and denial because you feel like you don't have any other option, that's not what I want for you. And so this episode was created, this conversation that you're about to listen to was created with you in mind. Because your suffering is just not necessary. It's not efficient. It's not effective. It's not morally correct. Asexuality is basically a kind of depression. It's a self-protection mechanism. It is the metaphorical equivalent of battening down the hatches, to use the old sailing expression. Um, when there is a storm coming or there is a storm present, they would fasten down the doors to the ship to make sure that no water came into the ship. And that's basically what your mind is doing. You have an unconscious mind that loves you unconditionally. If you've ever had a pet, like a dog or a cat, that you just loved unconditionally, then that's how your unconscious mind feels about you. And it is trying to help you and protect you by deflecting pain or the possibility of pain or the potential of pain. But just like how staying in an abusive relationship is never the solution to the abusive relationship, staying in the state of asexuality is never the solution that is going to lead you to a happy and healthy and fulfilling life. Your sexuality is as natural a part of you as the air that you breathe. And you deserve, and in my belief are entitled to, the kind of spine-melting, mind-shattering orgasmic responses that your body is capable of. And then once you can do those things, you can make up your own mind as to whether you want to have them every day or every week or just when he fucks you or just when she kisses you or whenever you want to, whenever is good and healthy for you. But you have to be able to, to do those things and feel those things before you can make that decision for yourself. Because if you can't feel both of those things, if you can't feel ecstatic bliss or the opposite of ecstatic, ecstatic bliss, then you can't really choose. Because you're not choosing from two options, you're choosing from one option, which is feel numb, protect myself. So I want you to listen to this conversation with that in mind. I want you to understand that if you are asexual, this episode is for you. I don't think you're broken. 
I think you've been victimized by a society that hates God, it's just it's sometimes it's hard to explain, but let's just use the generic term people responding in certain ways. And I could get into why, and maybe I will in a future episode, but the short answer is basically, you don't have to feel this way. The answer is not to continue feeling this way. It's to accept that you feel this way for a reason, to understand those reasons, and then to solve these unconscious problems at the unconscious level with effective, specific, powerful hypnotherapy or conventional talk therapy if you want to take the slower approach which can sometimes work, but the statistical likelihood of success is dramatically lowered. It is effectively impossible to solve a unconscious problem at the conscious level, which is, of course, why asexuality doesn't respond very well to conventional talk-talk therapy, but why it responds extremely rapidly and very positively to hypnotherapy. So listen to that episode with that in mind. I I care. I know this sounds trite, but I care very much about you. And I know that your life would be better if you were if you had the ability to feel these things when you chose to. Not that I would force people to, but I want you to have the option to choose this if you want to and not to simply have to settle for numbness and despair and I wish that I could feel this way but I can't you don't deserve that and I'm angry I'm angry at a world that creates systems that postulate this as a normality that postulate perpetual suffering or loneliness as normal. If you're a person who thinks that asexuality isn't healthy, you're a normal person. You're having a normal person response to a world in which being emotionally numb is put forward as socially and culturally reinforced. If you don't believe me, simply try telling your asexual friends, if you're asexual yourself, that you've decided to get help for your asexuality and see how many of them have psychotically rage-filled emotional responses at the idea of you taking positive action to better your own life. It's astonishing to me how many people that who in the one sentence will say that they love you as a friend will in the next sentence insist that you never do anything to change or improve yourself. Even if that improvement is not necessarily an alternative or a side grade, but providing you with more options, more freedom, more power to choose the kinds of responses that your body has to intimacy and connection and not being forever a prisoner of a single default response of numbness and apathy. You deserve better than that. And I'm sure this sounds trite and that's okay, I don't give a shit, but 
you deserve better than that. You deserve to be able to experience these things. And if you don't know how to, then get in touch with me and I will run some group classes or work with people one-on-one. But this conversation, I feel, accurately summarizes, or the one that you're about to listen to accurately summarizes some of the content I have created on this topic. If you have a partner who is asexual, please understand that the system, the situation came about because a part of their unconscious mind thinks that this sort of response is a useful self-protection mechanism. They're not doing it to hurt you. They're doing it for another reason, which once that reason is resolved using a superior and more effective coping strategy than just denial, then the need for that asexuality will essentially disappear and their body will be able to respond in a way that allows the two of you to connect in that way that every relationship should essentially be about. Deeply, meaningfully, intimately, lastingly, so that you can build something that matters together. So thank you for listening. Okay. So the first thing to go, just to summarize, the first thing to go when you are asexual is that you lose a very important way of telling that you're in an unfulfilling relationship because you can't distinguish a sexually satisfying relationship from a sexually unsatisfying one. And your body is wired to use sexual satisfaction as a a good indicator of whether you're compatible with this person long term. So when you aren't having good sex with them or any sex with them or allowing your body to respond in any way, you lose a very important indicator of whether this person is a good person for you to be in a relationship with. They might be wildly abusive, but you don't know because you're not having sex with them. Therefore, you can't tell when your body is no longer responding to them sexually, right? Uh, As a simple example, to loop back through this again, um, let's imagine that you're in an abusive relationship where he hits you non-consensually, right? Now, one of the indicators of this is that you wouldn't feel sexually safe around him anymore and your orgasms would stop. That's a pretty big sign that you should pay attention to the relationship, right? However, if you've never had responsiveness with him and then when he starts hitting you, you continue to never have responsiveness with him, you can't as easily tell the difference between that relationship being good for you or relationship being bad for you. So your body has a kind of wisdom where it knows these things and it lubricates and responds with orgasm and arousal to people that it thinks are really, really sexually compatible with you and compatible with you emotionally and compatible with you as a relationship partner. It's like, um, it's like those light bulb moments where you get the light bulb going off above your head. You don't have that, right? The other major indicator, the other major reason this is is an issue is that it causes you to be massively more stressed than someone who is having regular vaginal orgasms from penetration, right? And that's the the standard I I would think of as being healthy in a relationship. If a guy is not having ejaculatory orgasms from penetration, 
that's something that he would normally go and see a doctor about, right? If a woman isn't having uh, vaginal orgasms from penetration, they think that's normal. Or they think there's something wrong with them, and that's not true. You know, or they think there's something wrong with their male partner and then they dump him and replace him and the next guy is just the same. It's because they have some internal issues that need resolving before their body can respond in the right way. In, in, the, in the way that most reduces their stress. Orgasms dump a truckload of stress release hormones into your brain. Clitoral orgasms give you like a backpack worth. But vaginal orgasms give you like... A, like a six hour soaking in the bathtub worth, right? You, people, when they're having regular vaginal orgasms are massively less stressed. Things that used to bother them, they just don't bother them anymore. They're much more focused on the things that are actually important in life. And they just generally feel okay and much better than someone that is identical in every way but isn't having actual vaginal orgasms regularly. Does it make sense? So, we've established that asexuality is harmful to women because it prevents you from feeling deeply feminine. It prevents you from most enjoying your life. You miss out on things that you didn't even know you're missing out on, right? And it also causes your stress levels to go way up because you're not having something that is kind of built into the system it's like if you don't go to the gym and you eat too much, you get fat. But that's a built-in part of the system, right? And if you keep living life and you don't have orgasms regularly, you get way more stressed than you're supposed to be because the, your body assumes that you'll be having regular vaginal orgasms and uses the truckload of happy chemicals to counterbalance the stress. Okay? So, if you're, a, if you're a woman and there is nothing physically preventing you from having an orgasm, there are two major things that I have found in my several years of clinical work and well over 200 clients successfully treated that have worked every single time. The first reason to, to establish whether it exists or not and then solve and resolve it is, is there some sort of trauma? preventing her from surrendering to the experience or allowing herself to be enjoying the experience, right? Did someone violate her boundaries when she was younger? Was she raped? Was she traumatized? Was she sexually assaulted? Did she just feel like she was sexually assaulted? Um, is there some sort of guard up? Is there some sort of barrier in her mind where she needs to or she feels the need to protect herself from being quote-unquote, out of control, the way that an orgasm would make her feel. Right. Now, this also manifests with men, but it's not as common, and it takes a more extreme case in a man than it does for a woman to cause problems for a man. Um, because for men, the orgasm is like mostly physical. It's like 70% physical, 30% mental. For women, it's like 70% mental, 30% physical, right? So women are more vulnerable to trauma making it difficult for them to have orgasms and to enjoy orgasms. So the first thing I would look at is, is there trauma? Is it a sexual trauma or just an emotional trauma? Is there some sort of bad experience that she's had in the past? And then you go in and you do the work 
and you resolve this, right? And that will either clear up the problem completely or there's one other thing you have to do. Sometimes there isn't trauma and that's okay. That just means that you move on to step two. So step two is basically that, okay, so in Australia, a long, long time ago, and I think still a little bit these days, but not as much, there was this series of ads. And I was a kid and I always used to wonder why these ads were on television. And these ads were for something called the Reading Writing Hotline, right? And they had a really catchy, catchy jingle and they had a really cool song and it was like an animated ad, it was hand-drawn and I, it really stuck in your head. So the Reading Writing Hotline. One, three, triple five, six, triple five, oh six, right? Right? Um, and I thought, okay, and, it, and it's like adult learning a hotline. And I'm like, but why would adults need to learn how to read? Right? Didn't they learn in school? And the short answer to that question is no, sometimes they don't, right? In my parents' generation, it was very common for people to pull their kids out of school, like in year five or six. And a kid might struggle with learning to read and write up to that point and then get pulled out of school so their parents can send them to work in the family business or behind a shop counter or something. Um, and they just might never learn to read formally. They might learn to recognize patterns or symbol, like, you know, they, they might know that this means apple, but they don't know what the letters A-P-P-L-E mean. They don't know how to, do you know what I mean? They don't know how to read properly. And the longer this goes on, the more their shame and their guilt built up, and you end up with people that are like 35, 40, 50 years old that can't read, but also can't tell anybody that they can't read because it's just such an incredible source of shame to not be able to do something that is considered so fundamental in society, right? And these people were really hurting. And so someone started, I think it was a government program, I'm not sure, um, you know, hats off to whoever it was, but I think it was a government program to basically say, hey, if you can't read or write, you can call us and we will send you out a little kit and we will help you to learn to read and write. The reason this is important is when a problem is a source of shame for someone and the longer that it goes on, the more shame tends to accumulate around this or their mind just starts to numb everything so that they don't feel the pain of being ashamed or guilty or feeling broken or whatever it is that they're telling themselves, right? So, the reason this is relevant is because of circumstances not be up, like beyond their control, not within their control, these kids just didn't learn to read. And then some other things happened and then some other things happened and then they just didn't learn to read long enough that they missed all the opportunities to read because a lot of school is built on the assumption that you can read at a certain level by a certain point, right? And so if you, if you fail like year five, then they assume that you can just read and then they'll start teaching you level six stuff or year six stuff and, and you just can't. And it just makes you so frustrated and angry and so depressed and feeling powerless. And it's a horrible, horrible, horrible feeling for these people, right? And the longer this goes on, the more pain it causes them, the more shame they feel, the more guilt, the more they have to lie to cover it up, right? Now, let's draw some parallels, right? 
So a girl is very shy. She wants to go out on a date, but she doesn't let herself go out on a date because she has a super religious upbringing or her parents are shaming her or she lives with her sick grandmother who takes up all of her time caring for her or she lives on a farm and there's no privacy. The list goes on and on. But for whatever reason, this girl is denied certain key formative experiences of being a happy, enthusiastic, feminine woman in her teenage years, right? So some of these off the top of my head would be things like first holding hands with somebody, right? First feelings of attraction, first kiss, um, first time having sex with somebody, first time spending the night with somebody, first time going on a date with somebody, first time traveling away together with somebody. These are all supposed to be healthy, happy, normal experiences. And sometimes not every girl gets to have those experiences. You know, maybe, maybe she comes from a really poor family and she can't afford to um, like live by herself, which would give her no privacy. So she turns 23 before she moves out of home, right? But now she can't tell anybody that she's a virgin. She can't tell anybody that she's never kissed a guy before because of the shame that she feels, this internalized sense of guilt, right? And so she doesn't know how to have sex with somebody and have it be satisfying for her because she's never had sex before. Or, you know, sometimes another variation on this is teenage boys don't know what they're doing, right? Sometimes they're evil, sometimes they're not, but they just don't know. No one teaches them this sort of thing, right? Everyone says, this is how you have sex so you don't have an STI, or so you don't catch or transmit an STI, right? But no one says, okay, this is how you have sex and have it actually be fun, right? Controversial opinion, but I think we should be teaching how to have enjoyable sex and not just, this is a boundary and also consent means this and also, um, you know, this is how you put a condom on a banana, right? I think we should be teaching people how to enjoy being a human being, right? But because women, okay, let's, let's not put the blame on men completely, but because men are required for these formative experiences, it's a lot of it's down to them, right? And, and men have the same sort of trauma, but that's not what we're talking about today, right? Men date crazy girls. I mean, oh God, man, I was growing up in a small town and there was this girl who was crazy hot who would just cut herself constantly because she was super depressed. And so every guy went out with her and then broke up with her after like two weeks, right? Because they just couldn't handle the fact that they would have to drive her to the hospital at three o'clock in the morning for the 20th time that year. And so from that, they learned young girls who are hot are crazy and from that, she learned, I'm a bad person who can't keep a relationship going because I'm not worth it. Bad experiences all around, but it was mostly just because there was an underlying mental health issue. So, the formative experiences are necessary for someone to have positive experiences doing normal sexual things. Now, obviously other sexualities exist, like you can be really kinky or you can be really into certain things. But everyone for their mental health and their physical health 
should be capable of responding in a reasonably satisfying way to the kinds of stimuli that people would think of as normal sex. Like, if a girl flashes your tits, that is supposed to make you aroused, right? And if it doesn't, then there's nothing wrong with you. It's just, it'll be easier for you to find a compatible partner if you have the ability to respond broadly and satisfyingly to a large number of stimuli, right? So there's this funny Twitter meme that I saw years ago and it was like, um, please stop vanilla shaming people. Not everyone needs to have their legs stuck in a bear trap while being punched in the face in order to come. Right? And it's basically like, okay, yeah, but you know, just because you're having ordinary, normal person sex doesn't mean that it's bad. Just because it's not super intense, super dominant, super kinky sex. Right? So, that's basically the two-step process. It's, there's either some kind of trauma preventing her from feeling safe enough to let go of control enough to actually allow the experience to happen. Or there is a lack of formative experiences, particularly in her early teenage years to late teenage years, of having positive experiences of either sex or the things that lead to sex, right? So let's say she's never held someone's hand before and the first guy who holds her hand is just a wildly abusive piece of shit, right? She might think this is normal because this is the only thing she has to compare it to, right? So the next guy comes along and he gets unconsciously compared to the old guy or the first guy um, and if she just happens to pick wrong or pick a guy that's really attractive but a terrible partner or um, pick a guy that's just abusive or pick a guy that later becomes abusive or if something like this happens, for whatever reason, she doesn't get the healthy formative experiences, right? So what that looks like is she doesn't get to be in a relationship with someone who's emotionally stable where she feels safe. She doesn't get to be alone with this person in a place where they won't be disturbed. Like... Their first time, God, okay, so let me tell you a story about this, this, um, this guy. And um, he was a friend of a friend of my brother's. And uh, there was this girl that really liked him. And this girl was a virgin and she'd never been with anyone before. And he'd never been with anyone before. And so basically this friend of a friend of my brother's was like, hey, you've got a car. I've got a motorbike, but I want to borrow it. Like, can you kind of borrow your car? And I was like, why? He's like, um, cause we barely knew each other. We're like, we'd met like two or three times, but we weren't friends. And, uh, he's like, I want to go like pick up a girl. And anyway, the long story short version is his first time was sneaking in through the back door of this girl's house, tiptoeing through her house at like 9 PM and then having extremely awkward, totally silent sex with her in her bedroom for about 15 minutes before his dad, or sorry, her dad, walked in on the guy and like physically threw him out of the house, right? Now, that's the kind of experience that doesn't naturally lend itself to developing a positive impression of what sex should be like for people, right? She liked this guy, he really liked her, but they had no privacy. They obviously used protection. Um, 
but it wasn't like a fun experience for either of them, you know? And when things start off like that, other bad things can happen and they can compound and create this expectation that sex is supposed to be like painful or boring or unfulfilling or unsatisfying or, or, you know, and it's basically that they just haven't had the right set of experiences for them in order to, for them to be able to enjoy sex. So some more of the technical details of how I went to solve this was basically the trauma if there is any, you first explore that, find out specifically if there is something, and then you would use a variety of different techniques depending on the nature of the trauma. But for the lack of formative experiences, you would use a regression, generally, um, and some sort of creation of ideal scenarios. So you can take yourself back to when you were a little girl, and you, know, you can have a positive experience of your parents you know, not arguing not fighting all the time, right? You can lead this person through the ideal set of formative experiences for them to be able to actually relax and enjoy a satisfying, intimate sexual experience with their male partner, right? So in a very simple way of explaining this, there's either trauma blocking them, once you remove the trauma, the problem is either fixed or Sometimes there isn't trauma, um, but it's one of these two things, and I would usually fix the trauma first because that's usually like removing the blockage, and then you provide them with the extra formative experiences they need to feel safe, to feel comfortable. And then I guess a third component would be like teaching them basic sex skills, like the three-minute game, like um, the getting-to-know game. So that's the one where you practice boundaries and you respect their boundaries and you thank them for expressing their boundaries, and it really makes them feel safe. These are all extremely basic sexual skills and they build on this formative, this bank of formative experiences that allow this person to, if not excel in sex right away, at least be open to their body responding in a sexual way that is, for some people, absolutely terrifying at first. This idea, like, I mean, I've worked with people from so many different experiences and they have so many different reasons why they struggle with this religious indoctrination. I've worked with ex-cult members who were told they will literally die and go to hell if they have sex with someone they're not married to. Um, or if they masturbate, you know? Um, it's like, Jesus fucking Christ, like this is just insane. But there are still people these days that, that preach these things and it's horrible, right? And, and it scars people. The solution, of course, is resolve the trauma create and have them enjoy and learn positive lessons from the series of correct formative experiences, you know? So let's use a simple example for contrast. And, and then the third point is basically teaching them basic sexual skills so they can learn to have fun with it, right? Um, let's use soccer as a less emotionally charged example. It's like, let's say that they hate soccer, right? And yes, you can go through your whole life never having played soccer, but then you're missing out on an important part of life. Right? So, first of all, you'd uncover if they have any trauma about soccer. Did their grandparents drag them along to soccer games when they were a kid? Did they get lost in a soccer stadium when they were a child, right? You fix all of that first, and then you go, okay, well, 
let's create in their mind positive experiences in the correct order in the correct way about having you know like let's go back and have them turn eight years old and they get a soccer ball for their birthday and then one of their best friends plays with them and they have a great time and they start to associate oh soccer is good right um and then and then they get a little bit older and they pick a team to support in the town and then they go to the games and they have a good experience there they meet a girl they kiss under the bleachers it's a good time soccer is good and then later on it's like oh i'm at university and i want to make some friends and i'm going to go play soccer and i'm going to make 10 more friends and we're all going to be friends and it's going to be great because soccer is good right and then you would teach them how to actually play soccer properly how to run, how to enjoy it. You teach them the basic stamina exercise, like you build their stamina to the point where they could play soccer and not feel out of breath all the time. You teach them the basic skills of soccer, passing and guarding different positions, all of this kind of stuff, right? So asexuality is basically, it is basically a source of pain and suffering. And for anyone who is asexual and who says it's not a source of pain and suffering, they are basically numbing themselves by closing themselves off from the possibilities that can happen when they're with the right person. So they're not happy, they're just not unhappy. And there is a difference between being not happy and being not unhappy. One of them is neutral and the other one is very negative. But their brain is basically saying, we need another person to have sex with. And all of the guys we've dated so far are terrible. They're either terrible people and we just had to pick them because we didn't know any better or because there was no one else in town. You know, small towns sometimes, limited dating pools. Or big cities, you know, bad experiences with guys treating them like dirt. You know, getting sexually assaulted, getting drugged, getting raped, getting raped again. Like... You know, all this stuff causes so many problems for women, it makes it hard for them to relax, hard for them to trust, hard for them to be vulnerable. So you fix all the trauma, right? And then you create whatever formative experiences are necessary of them having good relationships. Okay, so you meet a guy and he likes you and you like him and you go on a date and you hold hands and you're vibing and everything's great. You talk about um, Marvel movies or the weather or how much you love hiking in the Austrian mountains and everything is going great. And then he asks if he can kiss you and he does and your whole body just glows. That's how it should feel in a perfect world, right? But not every girl gets to have those experiences. But with hypnosis, we can create those experiences for her so she's able to have those things so that she can then grow and learn and process. And then... She's open to the idea of having sex with someone. She's capable of physically responding to that person in a satisfying way that can then lead to an orgasm for her. And then you would teach her basic sexual skills like how to suck a guy's dick, how to ask for what she wants in bed, how to give and take, and how to lead and follow, and how to, um, you know... Those sorts of things, basic skills, like the expressing your boundaries and all this sort of stuff. The stuff that I cover in the basic podcast episode on basic sexual skills. Um, There's a couple of really interesting things that I have noticed, though, um, trend-wise. So one of them is for women that have 
no difficulty having vaginal orgasms or clitoral orgasms alone, it's almost always trauma. Almost always. Um, they just don't feel safe enough with another person to be able to let go. That's almost always the answer. But in every single one of my clients' cases, those first two things of eliminate whatever trauma is blocking them, heal that, and then provide them with the correct formative experiences to, to lead to them being able to respond in a way that leads towards sexual responsiveness, lubrication, and orgasm for them with someone that they choose to be with sexually, and then teaching them basic sex skills to make sure that those guys are actually doing the right thing together. You know, it's like, oh, it's some, yeah, people get some weird ideas from the lack of sex education. This is why I think how to have enjoyable sex is just as important, in my view, as how to actually have um, sex that doesn't transmit an STI. Like, that is the absolute bare fucking minimum, and I think that we can do better than that. I think we can do better than, here's a condom, put it on a banana, cool, you're fine now, you know, go and make potentially life-altering decisions about your relationships, because even though we haven't taught you literally any of these skills you're still going to be held responsible for whatever mistakes you make for the next 18 years of your life legally, you know? <clears throat> so, yes, I have intermittent difficulty with asexuality. I've met a lot of women who, um, who have very protective unconscious minds. So you get more of what you use in your mind typically like it's like a, different muscles grow different abilities grow unconsciously depending on how much you use them and i became fascinated by the way that so many sexually quote-unquote dominant women in the kink scene um would when i when i sort of interviewed them or asked them or you know just said hey like how does this work they would happily admit to being sexually submissive at home or in their personal relationships, or when they felt safe. And what I realized was basically every single person that I've ever met in kink, who was a biological woman mm. who identified as sexually dominant, was basically using it as a coping mechanism uh, in place of therapy. I'm not saying that they can't do those things. There's a whole episode I'll do on the difference between labels and, and reality when it comes to this sort of stuff. But that was an interesting trend that I noticed, was basically all of them were quote-unquote dominant in public, but then in private, extremely submissive to whoever, whichever partner they had actually chosen for themselves, who they felt safe with. That would be the more natural response for them. It would be like them with their guard down. And then I thought, well, why do they have to have their guard up? You know, that's a horrible way to live your life. And it was basically, according to them, a coping mechanism from trauma. You know, they met a guy, he hurt them, they decided they would never allow themselves to be hurt like that again. So they decided to become the opposite of whatever they were when they were hurt. So young, innocent, naive becomes, you know, grouchy, bitter, bitchy, aggressive, demanding, and then a bunch of submissive guys reinforce that demand for that, you know, because submissive men are very manipulative. Um, but that's a whole separate can of worms to unravel so that's one trend that i've noticed when it comes and goes intermittently like that it's usually an indicator of 
Now, I'm, I'm going to say some things here that might be that might sound very general, but I don't I don't want you to that way I want you to think I don't <clears throat> I don't want you to think that they apply to you specifically because they may not Aiden ignore details about your um, specific circumstances. No, no, you you can absolutely ask me for therapy. I'm just saying, don't take wisdom from this as though it applies specifically to you because it may not. But when it happens intermittently, in the past, it's basically been a kind of seesaw where there is some sort of blockage, psycho, emotional, sexual, usually it's in this case, it's usually, um, the trauma sort of part, part one of this three part process. Um, when that is sort of strong enough, but it's overcome temporarily by just pure biological imperative. Um, female arousal is very cyclical. Men's is very static. It's just, we're always horny all of the time, all the time, all the time. Yes, really. Like that, except 10 times more intensely. There was a fantastic book. I can't recall the exact title of it, but I think it was like Making a Man or um, On Making a Man or Becoming a Man or something like that. And it was written by a woman who decided to go on hormone replacement. No, that's not right. The Making of a Man. Yes, yes. It's horrible what happened to her. Absolutely horrible. Did you know that she died? She committed suicide. Yes. I don't know the specifics of it, but I, I was like, oh no, because I, I, I really respected her. I really admired her. I really liked her courage for what she was doing. And that was a point I was mentioning. Sorry, I, I just, I only found out that she committed suicide like a couple of days ago. I just, by accident, I was like, oh no, that's horrible. And like, it really, it really upset me. Um, but she described basically walking in for her first appointment and being sort of cheery and friendly and then walking out after her first injection of testosterone, which mind you was like one fifth of what a normal man feels all of the time. And she describes just brutally eye fucking every single thing with a pulse walking down the hallway on her way out of the hospital. Just, I'll do you, I'll do you, I'll do all of you. I'll do all of you one after the other or all at once. And, uh, that is pretty much what it's like being a guy, except stronger than that, pretty much all of the time. But that's evolution, that's just the way we're wired. Um, yeah, sorry, I, I'd forgotten that. It. it bothered me a lot when I found out that she'd passed away. Um, I know that it was a medically assisted suicide, so it may be that she had like terminal cancer or something else that, that made it, you know, easier to understand, but let's not get sidetracked there. The, the point is, women's arousal is very cyclical. It's basically in time with your cycles of ovulation, right? I've been in a long-term relationship with someone and we would live together for a long time. And at, by the end of the relationship, she was basically having sex with me. I like actually, I did this right before I broke up. I, I tracked it with a calendar for two and a half months. I, because the relationship was going to end. It was just a matter of time. I was just saving up some money so that I could, you know, move somewhere else and live somewhere else. Um, cause you know, I wouldn't be splitting the rent halfway anymore. 
And <clears throat> I've told this story a few times and a lot of people had really negative reactions. They're like, oh my God, I would never want you to treat me like that. And I'm like, congratulations, I'm never gonna have to do it again. But I needed to understand what was going on. So I started collecting data and looking for patterns. And basically every single day, I would ask her one time at a time when sex was possible and practical, so not like right before she went to work or right after she got home from work, but you know, like seven o'clock at night when there's nothing else to do and you're both happy and cuddling up on the couch, I would just ask her like, hey, would you like to have sex right now? And I did this every day for two and a half months. And I marked out all of the yeses on a calendar. And of course I marked out all of the no's as well. And then when I broke up, because I was, you know, young and feeling a little bit petty, I gave her that calendar and basically explained that this is the reason that we were breaking Well, this is one of the reasons we were breaking up. But it was basically that we had sex two or three times in that two and a half month period, but only ever within the three day window when she was ovulating. It was absolutely as regular as clockwork. But obviously you should never have unprotected sex with someone that you don't know the STI status of or that they don't, or that you don't trust and be honest with you. This is all just super basic shit, you know? Don't have unprotected sex with people that are having unprotected sex with other people. And if you don't trust them, blah, 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 all this stuff. But <clears throat> when it comes intermittently like that, it's basically a biological imperative temporarily overriding all of the things that are that would normally be blocking it. And this is like the female equivalent of a male wet dream. So if men don't have ejaculations for, I don't know, like two or three weeks, basically your body's like, okay, you're not playing ball, it's time to go, you know? And so you'll just fantasize about that cute blonde cheerleader that you really want to bang, and then your body takes care of the rest. And it's basically like that for women, except it can happen while you're sleeping or while you're awake. So that's basically I found what the cause is when it's intermittent like that. Now the solution in all of these cases is therapy with a particular emphasis on hypnotherapy or the use of hypnotic techniques to resolve trauma that might be blocking someone allowing themselves to feel these things. The creation of the appropriate formative experiences to give them a solid bank of positive experiences, having these things done to them, doing these things to others, and then baseline instruction in functional basic sex skills so that you can feel confident that you're a good partner in bed, right? No starfishing, no being a pillow princess, no worrying about whether you're gonna last or not, just knowing that no matter what happens, you will be able to play your part in the dance that is the creation of a fantastic sexual experience between you and your consenting partner in an intimate context. Um, no matter whether they're responding to you or not, you'll know that what you're doing is right and would normally result in responses. I had a really interesting conversation with someone who's a good friend of mine, actually, a couple of days ago. We were talking on the phone and there's this new girl... Um, it was actually kind of a weird situation because his his last girlfriend broke up with him, um, but his last girlfriend was like, okay, to all of her girlfriends, basically said, okay, girls, it's open season on this guy. He's a great guy. You know, you really can, like, and basically, based, not, not, 
basically, but literally, told her friends, particularly two of her friends, to go and fuck her ex-boyfriend. Um, <coughs> so, one of these girls did. Um, but they both put the moves on, one, one he wasn't interested in and one he was. And um, this girl's amazing. She's funny, she's smart, she's sexy, she's confident, she's got her own car, she's she, you know, renting a house. Um, she's like the total package, right? And, um, and, and they go to bed and he has an amazing time because he listens to my podcast and he knows exactly what to do, right? And then he's like, so basically nothing worked. And I'm like, oh, okay, let's well, describe it to me. And he's like, well, I've been with a lot of girls. He's like been with five or six girls so far. So like most of the time, the stuff that I'm teaching works on these girls. And then he's like, well, with this girl, nothing was working. Um, like I did the fingering techniques that you talk about in your podcast and, and like, you know, some of the verbal stuff, the dirty talking issue was just like, just not into it. And he's like, at, at one point he was like, are you okay? Like, do you want to stop? And she's like, no, 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 I want to keep going. Cause she was just like that much not into it. He was like, is she just like faking it for some reason? Anyway, she was into it, but she explained that they were, that she has a lot of difficulty coming and basically can't orgasm. And he's like, oh no, that's terrible. Because when you're a guy, he hasn't accounted this a lot. Your whole ego is tied up basically because of feminist brainwashing into how hard you can make a girl come. So women will absolutely 100% lie to men about how important this is. They will say, no, no, it's fine that I don't have an orgasm. It's fine. It's totally fine. And then two seconds later, they'll dump you. So men have learned never to trust a woman when she says, oh, it's fine that I'm not coming during sex. Right? Um, and of course, they're very kind of paradoxically motivated by this, this insistence that it's not a negative or a bad thing, even though they know that it actually is a huge deal that this guy hasn't been able to make, quote unquote, make her feel this way. They know that from that point onwards, it's basically a matter of time before she dumps them and moves on to the next guy. <coughs> so he was trying everything. Nothing was working. And basically she said, I just, I've never had an orgasm with a partner. I don't even have them alone. And she's like 26. And she's had about 10 boyfriends before this. And he's like, I ended up basically just eating her out for a long time. And she really liked that. Side note, women often really like eating, uh, being eaten out because it feels very non-threatening. And it takes a certain amount of feminine strength to be able to receive masculine strength. This is one of the reasons why I talk about how being a submissive is not as hard as being a dominant, but it does require a minimum floor, I guess, of um, inner strength. Because it, there is a certain level of strength required to be able to be a submissive, particularly a submissive outside of the bedroom, but also inside the bedroom. Um, it's not that you require an absence of strength or like a complete weakness. It's that you have to actually be quite strong in order to actually be aware of your own strength enough to surrender it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So this, this guy basically ate her out for half an hour and they did this like two or three more times, both that night and on a couple of subsequent hookups. 
And then he's just like, he said to me, I feel so terrible because she's such an amazing person, but like, I can see why she was single now. I can see why guys wouldn't want to like deal with that. And I mean, I feel bad for her. I do. Cause this guy's a great guy. He's a real catch and they're very compatible, but he's just like, I've been in way too many sexless relationships to be in another sexless relationship. And basically they're just staying friends now. And she's happy because she gets to spend a bit of time with the guy, but he's like, I man, if she was, if she could make me feel like a man in bed, I would have, you know, like I would have jumped into a relationship with this girl easy. And I'm like, man, that is tragic. That's tragic. But it's not about guilting someone into doing something. That doesn't work. It doesn't work the same way that guilting someone into quitting smoking doesn't really work. It's about explaining that being asexual is sort of like everybody else gets to go on a school trip and you're trapped in the classroom by yourself. And that's not really where you want to be. You want to be with your friends. You want to be having fun. And you're capable of doing that. And asexuality is not a desirable state of mind. It's, it is a defense mechanism. It is your unconscious mind that loves you unconditionally, that wants to protect you and make you happy going, we can be in pain or we can be numb. So we're going to be numb. But the solution, of course, is to get therapy and resolve that pain so that you don't have to be numb anymore. And you can actually just feel. And then you can start to learn these things and explore these things. And then you can start to have the kinds of experiences that your life was meant to include. You were meant to meet someone amazing and fall in love and have, you know, amazing butterflies just from holding hands. That's normal. And sometimes the reason that you haven't had that yet is because a lot of guys are pretty garbage these days. You know, sometimes it's their fault. Sometimes it's not, but these sorts of experiences require another person to have them with that person. And sometimes what's missing in your life is the other person. And sometimes what's missing in your life is there's a blockage. And sometimes what's missing in your life is there's a lack of past good experiences that allow you to actually enjoy the experiences that you're having right now. And, and basically this guy and this girl, they sat down and they talked about it like adults, which was, you know, very mature of them. And they basically, like, he's telling me about how, you know, I don't know what her name is. He didn't tell me her name. He just protected all her personal information. He's like, what do I do? And I'm like, well, but, um, he's like, what should I do? And I'm like, well, you need to talk with her about this. You need to explain. The problem is if you just explain, hey, sex is important to me, the first thing she's going to do is get really defensive and feel hurt. And so it's it's more a case of like helping this person to understand that they don't have to feel this way and that you want to be able to enjoy yourself. It's it's a really delicate balance to, to walk and it's hard to get it right the first time or even the first couple of times that you encounter this. Because a lot of the approaches that you would normally take where you're like, hey, I really care about you, they're hard to pull off because you just met this person like a week ago. Um, or it can come across as really guilt-induced or self-serving. Like, I want you to be able to have satisfying female orgasms because I want to feel like a man. And they're like, well, that's really selfish. And it's like, actually, it's not really selfish. It's just normal. Like... You want to be with a guy that makes you feel like a woman 
sometimes when it's appropriate for you, when you feel it's appropriate, right? And a guy wants to be with a girl that makes him feel like a man, that makes him feel powerful and strong. Not necessarily all of the time, but at least some of the time. And the easiest way to do that is in bed, you know, to have satisfying, meaningful, enjoyable, mutually enjoyable sex. And that does require both people enjoying themselves. And the tricky part, of course, is that you, as her boyfriend slash casual lover, you can't really perform therapy on her. The, the right context hasn't been established for that. Sometimes it can work, but it takes a lot of skill and it's, it's a very low percentage probability of success. Um, so at the moment, they're just staying friends. And I'm just like, oh man, that situation just sucks. Because she's a great girl, you know? And it's just, it's terrible that she has to miss out on what her body is capable of. And then she would say, well, I'm not missing out. And I'm like, but you are though, right? The way that I like to think about this sometimes is this is like someone, so, so there are people who exist who have leg injuries that prevent them from walking, right? I think I explained this to you before as well. I mentioned this before, but it's like, it's okay if this is offensive. That's, it's not designed to be, but I'm trying to communicate a point. And the story is basically, if you've decided to be asexual, it is the same thing as a, as a person who has two perfectly functional legs just waking up one morning and for absolutely no reason at all just deciding that they're never going to use them ever again. And that's usually because there's some pain associated with it. Like someone told them they have really ugly looking legs or someone told them they couldn't run very fast. It's, it's the same thing with sex. The things that people say to you in bed, they can really hurt you. You know, and they can, they can sometimes create scars that last for years. But the solution to all of this, again, is therapy. It's not, oh, I'm just never going to date again. Or, oh, I'm just never going to walk again. I can. I have two perfectly functional legs. I'm just choosing not to. That is never the answer. Denial is never the answer. Escaping is never the answer. Not in the long term. In the short term, I, you know, if you get raped, that's a separate thing to deal with. You know, there's protocols for that, that that resolve that trauma effectively immediately. I've helped heaps of people that had that problem. Um, and by the end of the session, they're laughing about it, which sounds unbelievable, but it's actually really normal for me. Um, but people don't have to suffer. This is the thing. It's like people that are asexual. They don't have to suffer, and I don't want them to feel like they have to suffer. But at the core of it is basically a part of their brain that, that loves them unconditionally and wants to protect them from pain or absence or loss. Basically just making everything numb, not allowing them to respond. But eventually those biological imperatives override that, at least temporarily. And that's usually when they go out and have a one-night stand with a guy who is terrible, but just available and happens to be available during that critical window when she's horny enough biologically because it's that time of the month to overcome the normal barriers to her having a satisfying sexual experience. That is the end of this conversation. I hope that you have enjoyed this and that it's given you more clarity around 
the way that asexuality can form and how there are several extremely simple and very approachable solutions to this so that you and your partner can enjoy a deeper level of meaningful intimacy, connection, trust, love, and joy, and all the other wonderful things that both of you deserve to feel in your relationships. You can find more content on these topics and you know, erotic hypnosis and all the other stuff that I talk about at my website and podcast. The website is thewordsmithspeaks.com T-H-E-W-O-R-D-S-M-I-T-H-S-P-E-A-K-S.com And I also have this podcast, of course, at MindKink, M-I-N-D-K-I-N-K. Thank you for listening. I hope that you can keep an open mind about this topic. I know it's an important one, and I feel like a large amount of human suffering can be alleviated if we work together to understand and then resolve these issues as much as we can without judging the people that are suffering from them.